So you heard here on the day, Lorenzo Adamson will be barbecuing on behalf of SFPD. He's going to do us proud. I won't be here to- this is from an SFPD barbecue in 2021. Is that police work? Some would argue, yes. Here's another one. In Chinatown, to help ease the worries business owners have about burglaries, officers are trying something new. We had one set of officers who were literally going around the community with a, this is really weird, with a drill. This is Malcolm Young, executive director of the Chinatown Community Development Center. And like these reinforced padlocks and coming up to merchants saying, hey, listen, we noticed your padlock kind of sucks. And, you know, if something happens, you could be broken into in about 32 seconds. This will up the time to, you know, a minute and a half. Do you mind if we like, you know, widen the padlock hole in your gate or whatever and give you this reinforced padlock because it'll help everybody? And it's just like, what the heck is that? Right. To me, it's just like, that's that's cool. Like, that's really cool. The Chinatown Community Development Center develops and manages affordable housing and works on other neighborhood initiatives. Young knows that when people don't feel safe, as has been the case for some time in Chinatown, that has ripple effects. Public safety on the street matters. Public safety on Muni really, really, you know, matters. So in Chinatown, what that means is that, you know, ironically, the attention being paid to sort of the anti-Asian incidents that have happened, which are very real, are actually in some ways impacting the perception of Chinatown as a safe place. And, and that actually hasn't been necessarily the best thing. And, you know, unless you're able to sort of bend the perception on this front, you're in a situation where the whole community suffers because everybody is scared to go out. When everyone's scared to go out, the economy gets hit hard. So how do you make people feel safer? I'm going to say something that's going to be controversial to my progressive friends, but, you know, I love you too. But I do think there needs to be a deeper investment in policing. I think it needs to be community policing. I'm Laura Wenis. This week's fix, community policing. Cities are grappling with improving police departments and public safety. Lately, there have been calls for everything from beefing up police budgets and hiring officers to crack down on crime, to defunding the police and replacing officers with outreach workers. But there's also a more middle-of-the-road approach law enforcement agencies have been trying to implement for decades building relationships between cops and civilians with the aim of making people feel safer and more comfortable with officers so they'll call when something isn't right. Some community organizers say we need more of that and should invest in it. Critics describe it as just more law enforcement presence in already heavily policed areas while not always reducing crime. San Francisco's police department says it's meeting nearly all of its community building goals. So is it working? From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Community policing is kind of a difficult term to nail down, but Malcolm Young from Chinatown Community Development Center illustrates the concept with a story about the Pinyin Apartments in Chinatown. This is a public housing complex with more than 400 units across a few buildings. In 2015, after mounting concerns about increased crime there, SFPD assigned four officers to the pings full-time. The crime levels there were actually quite high, and it just wasn't being acknowledged, again, because of the model minority myth. And so what Central did was, um, as a solution, they decided, you know, we're going to try this different approach that we've tried in some of the other housing projects, which is creating a housing officer team. 
And we're going to embed them in the pings as a way of really trying to sort of figure out what's going on there. They ended up selecting these four officers and, you know, the team shifted now, but it's taken the same tenure. And they really emphasized to these officers that like, look, you're not there to only sort of enforce. You're there to actually be a part of this community and to get to know folks. And by getting to know folks, I saw this incredible transformation of the pings in terms of public safety. You know, one, I think it really began to sort of bridge the gap, you know, between police and community and the residents in particular. So there was a different kind of trust that we started to see emerging. Two, I think because of that trust and because of the communication relationship, it actually improved policing because the cops were then starting to better understand what was going on, who was doing it, where it was happening. And so the public safety environment improved dramatically. I like to tell the story of this one officer in particular, and I won't name him. Um, and, and sorry, you know, if you, if you take offense at this, but he's like the whitest white dude I've ever seen, right? But we used to have events. This dude would go home and he would build these like game boards in his backyard or, or whatever. I'm, I don't know what it was, you know, like cornhole throwing and wheel of fortune. And then he would bring them, you know, to the pings for these events and engage the kids in like playing this stuff. And I was like, is that really policing? And the answer was actually yes. And it was kind of the best, most beautiful form of policing. To me, it's like if we can invest in that, I mean, imagine sort of what the transformation of kind of the relationship to policing could be. I relayed this example to SFPD's acting commander, Chris Delgandio. What you said is like the definition in my mind of community policing. He kind of literally wrote the book on community policing at SFPD. He's one of the authors of the department's general order on community engagement. In 2016, the Department of Justice issued a collaborative reform initiative report about the SFPD. It pointed out, among other things, that the San Francisco Police Department didn't have a comprehensive community policing plan. So we do have a community policing strategic plan now, which is great. A long effort. (laughs) But we've come a long way since then. So 68 out of their recommendations had to do with community policing. And so we sort of took those on. And I think we're about 95% at least in my division, or 95% or greater done with those recommendations and met the compliance measures. I want to talk about the outcomes of this. So obviously you're focused on building connections with community members, but what does that do for public safety, for crime, for just like, you know, what the conditions out there? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So as you probably know, we're pretty short staffed. And so we're sort of counting on the public to work together with us in, in terms of neighborhood watches and what have you and and partnering with us to sort of increase safety. And that means having these community groups and community meetings and having that focus to just, you know, and sort of a side benefit of, of it is that people are actually getting to meet their neighbors, which they haven't really done before. You know, everyone kind of just goes into their own house and doesn't know their neighbors anymore really well until they come to our meetings. And, you know, not only do they make those connections, uh, but they make connections with us as well. So that they're actually talking with one another and passing along information. And we're able to better connect with the community through social media and what have you. And once we make those connections, it's a lot more people talking, a lot more eyes out there to help us make a safer neighborhood. And people feel more comfortable too when we're making these connections that if they know the officer, they'll feel comfortable calling and saying, hey, I'm, you know, this doesn't seem right to me. Can, can you help me out? Versus you know, having that hesitation of, do I call? Do I not call? Oh, hey, I know someone in the police department. I've been to these meetings. 
uh, I can reach out to them and see what they think, you know? So I think it increases the amount of things that are reported to us and builds those relationships where, you know, people know us and we're out there. And I think that's, that's, you know, definitely a, a great interaction so that people who might not necessarily trust the police are, we're building those relationships so that they trust us to, to come to us with neighborhood safety concerns that we can better address because of that. Research is mixed on whether community policing actually reduces crime rates. That might be due in part to the fact that definitions of community policing vary a lot from one department to the next. As Acting Commander Del Gandio says, it's less about specifically trying to get the crime numbers down and more about building trust with police to help people feel safe and engage with law enforcement. I think a lot of it comes down to perception in terms of how the community feels, if they feel safe in their community. And if they know their police officers, they'll know we'll be there if they call and they say, oh, I know Jack. He's a great, great guy. You know, if, if I call 911, maybe he'll show up. Those connections allow us allow greater reporting because a lot of people, especially with property crime being high in San Francisco, they just figure, why would I even bother reporting that? You know, and then they have a relationship with someone. They're like, oh, hey, so-and-so, my car got broken into. And then, you know, that officer can encourage them to report that and show them how. I don't want to do it then. They can report it online or what have you, but they can express to that person how important it is that we know these statistics so we can deploy our staffing appropriately. So uh, I think, you know, it definitely helps with underreporting. And I think that, you know, these relationships sort of just increase, the, at least increase the perception of safety and build connections where people feel like, oh, I know these officers and I know how to get a hold of them if uh, something doesn't look right. The barrier for those relationships and building that trust can be higher in some communities than others, though. Malcolm Young from the Chinatown Community Development Center, who told that story about the officers at the Pinyin Apartments, he acknowledges that too. I don't want to discount the fact that, you know, as a community, particularly in the last, I think, 10 to 15 years, you know, Chinatown does have a relationship to sort of police that laid a foundation for this. So it's not, you know, the same kind of relationship that, you know, Black folks have or Latinx folks have, where it is very much fear. There is very much, you know, I think stories of sort of enforcement mentality and a level of separation that um, needs to be bridged. After the break, we'll hear more about this and how community policing advocates say that can be addressed. Cities, including San Francisco, are adopting a community policing approach, trying to improve the sense of public safety by having officers build connections with residents of the places they police. It's not necessarily a new concept. Yeah, community policing had been a concept since like the 60s, although I think we tend to reflect back like to the 90s when it was implemented under um, Clinton. I mean, I grew up under a um, community policing program as well. This is Jason Williams. He's an associate professor of justice studies at Montclair State University. As a youth, it was a, you know, we, some of us, you know, when you're young, you love the police, you kind of want to be a cop and all of this, that, the third. And so they did a good job taking us out of our environment, you know, and introducing us to other things. But in the backdrop of that, there was this uptick of people being arrested. And this was especially the case in like places like New York City, you know, in the sort of larger cities. I come from like a small city in Northern Jersey, but that was a byproduct of it. And this is why some people felt as if it was really just an elaborate surveillance complex. Criminal statistics largely reflect where law enforcement chooses to police. 
And so that's the problem. But what's, I think, one of the big core issues with community policing, and, and I can recall, again, as a youth growing up in a housing project and, and again, under a program of it, is that they didn't necessarily include the voice of the community, right? And so it was, I think, a technocratic remedy, and if we could even call it a remedy, but a technocratic creation, you know, between academicians, policymakers, and police leaders. And so this is why, I mean, it, it failed in part due to the fact that it didn't really, you know, conjure up better relations between the community and the police, but also the lack of funding. You know, the community knows best how it wants to be governed. The issue is with communities of color, they tend to have subjective citizenship. So we don't tend to have voice to be able to affect change in, in how we are governed and therefore policed. To that point, what if the community in question in a community policing initiative is actually fearful of law enforcement? In the Mission District, you might encounter that fear. Susana Rojas, executive director of the Calle 24 Latino Cultural Corridor, knows the risks of calling the cops. I personally have lost people that I know to police brutality, right? So I know what it means to involve the police. But we also need to be able to have enough communication back and forth to be able to have a community program that can access the police if needed. Anybody that knows me knows that I do not call the police. It has to be like the last resort. I really need to feel like there is nothing that Susana Rojas can do in order for the police to be involved. In order to create this kind of rapport Rojas is describing, where officers know the person calling and know what to expect when they show up, a lot of work has to be done when there isn't an active call for service. I always say it's during the moments where there aren't crisis or controversy where we invest in the community. That's Sean Ward, a law enforcement officer with 20 years of experience between several different agencies working in administration and management roles. One of his focus areas is building relationships between cops and civilians. I think being able to allow police to be involved in community opportunities where there's not necessarily a need for police officers, right? Opportunities where, you know, there are no crimes to report or no proactive police efforts that needs to take place, but rather just that interaction during events where police don't have to come in to represent themselves as local government but rather represent themselves as human beings. Ward also says it's crucial for community policing initiatives to go both ways. Officers educate residents and learn about who they're working with. Both in my area and throughout the country, I can honestly say what will never work is the police trying to solve issues in the community without the community's input. That's never going to work. Different communities, there's a different way in that community. There's, there are different cultures in communities, and they can be two different communities that are side by side one another. So we have to understand the culture of the community, and the only way to do that is to have community members involved in the decision-making process, the implementation process, as well as the process of ensuring that goals and objectives are met along the way. 
I asked Acting Commander Delgandio, who helped write the city's playbook for community policing, about this. Yeah, absolutely. So, and part of the DOJ reforms, it involves when we're creating policy, like when I helped craft our general order regarding community policing, and we had a working group of diverse people throughout from the community. We had folks that worked for the Bar Association. We had a writer. We had a person who did not like the police. And we had the Department of Police Accountability. We had all these people coming in to, to talk about the policy and, and what they thought would be the best practice for community policing. So it was this collaborative effort where it's not the police are making the policy and we're not having community involvement. And so over the past few years, when we're making policy, we create these working groups and we invite the community in to come express their concerns and what they'd like to see in our policy. So we're not doing it in a silo. It's folks are able to come in and, and talk about it. And so we're working on getting more folks involved and interested. The Some of the folks that have been doing, doing it for years are, you know, kind of hanging it up and saying someone else's turn. And so we're trying to get that buy-in from a lot of folks in the community to come talk to us and, you know, tell us how you want the city to be policed and help us shape our policies because we're serving the public and we want it to be a collaborative effort with the community. One of the obstacles police face when it comes to building trust is the reputational damage that comes from incidents where officers kill civilians. Ward, the law enforcement community engagement expert, said police often find themselves having to field questions about high-profile use-of-force incidents that may have happened miles and miles away. But San Francisco doesn't have to look far away to find cases like this. In May, San Francisco police officers shot two men who were involved in a fight when one, armed with a knife, apparently lunged at the other. The standoff lasted about nine minutes. As the men grappled, several officers surrounded them with guns drawn. Both were killed. I asked Acting Commander Delgandio how officers address concerns about cases like this in conversations with the public. I had this conversation recently uh, in a training I was at, but it's sort of just not painting us all with a broad brush and realizing that there's millions upon millions of police interactions that go well every year. And those aren't usually the ones that you know, make the news and what have you. It's your everyday interactions. I think that, you know, it's important just to realize that and come talk to folks if you're able to reach out. You know, if you're not comfortable coming in person, just reach out to us and say that and we could find something that folks are comfortable with. Sometimes it's baby steps, you know, it's it's doesn't have to be a certain way. We're not so rigid anymore as we used to be. It's it's we're definitely more open and invite people in and wanna talk to folks. And I think, you know, and we'll hear your concerns and we'll talk about them because that's that's what we got to do. We have to have those hard conversations. If not, everyone's just going to be in their corner and uh, no one's going to come together, you know. Another way cities are reforming law enforcement is to take certain tasks out of the hands of officers and give them to other workers instead, like social workers who might be better equipped or trained to de-escalate a mental health crisis, help someone figure out how to get housing, or connect a person with drug treatment. Especially when it comes to de-escalation, reformers say armed officers are not the best tool. San Francisco has rolled out a few programs substituting other first responders for officers, including the Street Crisis Response Team, whose unarmed members respond to, as the name implies, people having some kind of crisis on the street. Right now, that team responds to somewhere around half of 911 calls about behavioral health with no weapon involved. The city's goal is to have it field all of those calls. Meanwhile, the police department intends to press forward with community engagement efforts, assuming it has enough officers. 
What is next for community policing in San Francisco? You're 90 plus percent of the way there on the DOJ suggestions. You have the department general order. You have a whole, you know, you're focused on this. This is what you do. So are there plans to do more of that? Like what happens now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's continually evolving, I believe. And as our communities and generations continually evolve. And I think that's what we want to do more of. Absolutely. It's those footbeats that are out there hanging out in the neighborhood that they're not running from call to call. You know, uh, as the chief said before, we're in an incredible staffing shortage and we're trying our best to, you know, do those community policing efforts. But it's, it's a struggle and protecting life and property has to be our number one priority. But the community policing effort is so important. About staffing. If you don't count airport police, San Francisco has about 21 sworn officers per 10,000 residents, which is more than most other California police agencies as of 2019. A different way of analyzing staffing levels done with the guidance of the law enforcement consulting group Matrix is more focused on the volume of calls for service. That suggests SFPD is short 352 officers. And SFPD actually has the budget for more officers than are out on the street right now, but about 200 positions are vacant. When we have the staffing to fill all those footbeats with regular officers who know the community and the community knows them, and to be out there engaging and doing these events and learning who people are and having people learn who we are. And so we're not just the police, I'm Chris, you know? Like, it's the way forward. It, this is what we have to do. It's very different and it has evolved with 21st century policing and it's been a refocus of the sort of guardian mindset where we're here with the community to guard them and work with them towards a safer city. Still, Del Gandio calls community policing essential. I think it's just imperative. Can't be an us versus them mentality. You know, it's it has to be has to be collaborative. I think that when you know your officers, there's less animosities, there's less assumptions. And I think that as we embrace community policing and embrace each other as all members of the community, We all have a common goal, which is public safety. And I think that we're all working together towards that. So why would be separate from that? We should all be together working towards that goal. And I think that's, you have to have that. It's it's so important. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Fixing Our City. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, engaging residents on how the city should shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com. But your involvement is crucial. Have ideas on creative solutions? Things we should explore? People we should talk to? We really want to hear from you shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. Audrey Brown assisted with research and fact-checking for this episode. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Next week on Fixing Our City, during the pandemic, a lot of cities stopped going out at night, including San Francisco. That's a nightmare scenario. Let me say that more clearly. Nightmare. I'll talk with someone who's done that job. See you next week.